Good morning, beloved. It's so good to worship our King together this morning. I have to tell you something that was a bit embarrassing and just a bad decision on my part a little while back. Um, I wore flip-flops, got my flippy floppies on for work one day. Um, and uh, I, I tried to make it a habit to walk down to the lake from the office and, and just spend some time in silence and prayer. And so I'm doing that, and it's this just a beautiful day. Um, flippy floppies are on, so you know it's a good day. But I'm down there, I'm spending time in prayer, just so relaxed, just calm, just enjoying time with God. And then I said, okay, it's time to head back. And as I go to head back, I'm sitting in an area where there's grass around it, and as I start to walk through the grass, all of a sudden, just wham, my toe is on fire. And, you know, we're all ashamed to admit it. But, you know, I was doing a Jim Carrey impersonation. We've all seen that movie. It was like, ah! Just like, why? Why is this happening? Um, I realized um, there's a stinger sticking out. And I remember my days as a first responder. Like, you don't grab it because then you just inject more in there. So, like, you know, take out a card or whatever. You got to make sure you scrape it out and all this stuff. But I'm just, I'm sitting here at my toe. And I realize I've been stung by wasps. I've been stung by scorpions, I've been bit by spiders. I don't know that I had ever been stung by a bee before. And I'm all alone and I'm thinking, this is it. (laughs) This is how this happens. So I call my wife. She doesn't answer, of course. That's normal. So I send her a lovely text message with all my last wishes. Head back up to the office and wait for my death. Um, um, I didn't die, you know, so that's good news for me. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Somebody celebrated that. <laughs> thank you. Um, but you know, here's the thing. That bee died. You know that? They die. Um, when they sting you, they die. And I take a lot of joy from that. Um, um, but here's the thing. The, the bee stings you and the bee dies. A PBS article written by Anna Christensen um, includes this description. Listen to this. Um, just When a honeybee stings, it dies a gruesome death. The bee stinger is structured in such a way that once it punctures human skin, the bee can't yank it out without self-amputating. As the honeybee tries to pull out the stinger, it ruptures its lower abdomen, leaving the stinger embedded, pulling out instead a string of digestive material, muscles, glands, and a venom sac. The honeybee stinger is hollow and pointed, like a hypodermic needle. It contains two rows of lancets or sawtooth blades. These blades are barbed in shape and face outward like a harpoon. As a bee stings, the blades alternate, scissoring together into your flesh. It looks and works like a screw anchor, meaning that once in, the stinger can't retract. Muscles connect the stinger to a venom sac, from which a cell-destroying toxin is pumped into the hole. And that is how that bee died. (laughs) And I live on. But seriously, in that moment, it was just like, that, that just like, why? Why would you do that? Like... I have no idea why. I mean, it seemed to think that I was some kind of a threat. Um, Also, fun fact, by the way, the pheromone, the scent that's given off, smells like bananas. And that's supposed to attract more bees, so get out of there. (laughs) Um, But if you smell bananas and you're like, this is bananas, like, get out. uh, anyway, but just, just why would you do that, B? Like, I'm not actually threatening anything. But with your final moments, and not that the bee knows it's going to die, I don't think it knows it's going to die, but with your final moments, to do that. And, and like when we think of final moments for anyone in their life, um, there's such significance. There's weight to what happens in your final moments, what you choose to do with your time. You know, good hypothetical, which can be a little morbid, but like it's actually really good for us to, to employ the wisdom of scripture. Like when that scripture says, like, teach us 
Lord, to number our days and give us a heart of wisdom. There's this connection between being wise or navigating this life in a way that honors God and is right and just and being mindful of the fact that we have only these days. And so as you bring those together and you think, what am I going to do with what time I have left in this life? There's significance there. You want to make the most of it. If you receive a diagnosis, God forbid, but if you receive a diagnosis, you have 24 hours left. What you do with those 24 hours is going to be so reflective of where your heart is at. What you treasure, what you cherish, what you value is going to be demonstrated in what you do with that limited time. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of John and we're coming to our conclusion as we've gone from Christmas um, to we're coming up on Easter and this resurrection as he dies and is brought back to life. But as we come to this point, Jesus has repeatedly been telling them, he's foretelling his death, I'm going to die. He's even told them the kind of death he would die, that he would be lifted up and they would know he's going to be crucified. What does he do? He knows it's coming. We reading through this gospel, like it's coming to this climax. Like you, you know that the moment is coming. His death is coming. It's imminent. It's about to happen. He is saying it more and more explicitly. He's giving them these kind of like final wishes. Like the farewell address is a farewell address. This discourse is all about him knowing my time is limited. So listen, guys, listen. And so they're all brought into this. They know someone's going to betray him. Like the tensions are high. And Jesus, knowing that it's about to happen, what does he do with these final moments? What does Jesus do in the final moments before this all turns deadly? So look with me in your copy of scripture at John chapter 17. John chapter 17, Jesus knowing that he is about to die. What does he do with this time? John 17, starting in verse 1. Read with me. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. What does Jesus do in his few moments left before this turns deadly? He's praying. He spends his time in prayer. You remember a few weeks back we talked about prayer is communicating but also communing with God. It's how we participate in the divine work of God. That Jesus, in these moments, knowing that his time is limited before he dies, he chooses to pray. He spends time praying. His prayer is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. The hour has come. And so, again, if you've been reading through this gospel, this is a a theme that comes up over and over, this theme of the hour. And we're not speaking of a literal 60-minute hour. They didn't have clocks as we have them. But this, this time has come. And he's been referencing this throughout the gospel, this hour. And it's always associated with glory. In fact, the first time we hear about the hour, you remember it's all the way back at that first sign of power and glory, this wedding in Cana. 
where they run out of wine, and this is an embarrassment, this is a shame brought on the family, and the mom of Jesus, Mary, she knows the family somehow, she has insider information, and so before the secret spills, she comes to Jesus, she's like, the wine's run out. And what does Jesus say? What does that have to do with me, woman? You know what else he says? My hour has not yet come. And we're introduced to this idea of an hour in that moment. And then you know what he does. He makes the best wine. And more than they could even dream of having in that wedding. And it says that he did this, his first sign or first revealing of his glory here. At a moment when he said, this is not my hour. And yet he does something to point to his glory. And now he says, the hour has come. This is the hour of glory. That this has all been culminating in this. It's been leading up to this hour. This time of glory where he is now praying, Father, glorify your son. Actually, the son is glorified so that the father would be glorified. It's this mutual glorification of the father and the son both together in this hour are going to be glorified. He wants the glory to resound. This is the hour. This is what it's all been coming to. That the Son is glorified so that the Father is glorified. And how are they glorified? He's giving eternal life to his own. It is in the giving of eternal life to his rebellious creation, to his own, who could do nothing to earn his favor. But the ones that he chose says, I love you, despite you, this is grace, this is glorious. Eternal life given to us is for the glory of God. And then he says, this is what eternal life is. Just knowing God and the one he sent, Jesus Christ. This is glory, to have eternal life. And what is eternal life? It is simply knowing God. It is to know him. It's this intimacy that we have with God. It's this relationship that we're brought into. And this is what we were created for in the first place, to actually be brought into the Godhead. Not that we become God, but we get to commune with him and enjoy him. That there's something in theology, this is called his aseity, that he is perfect in every way. He is transcendent and yet he is eminent. That there is nothing that God is contingent or dependent upon. He is whole and holy. He is good in every way. He did not need anything. The Father, Son, and Spirit, this Trinity, the perfect God, three persons and one beautiful God, has always been this, as Edward said, this overflowing fountain of love, this great joy that they needed nothing. And yet, he said, let's create and invite this creation into this. And so he creates man in his own image, inviting us into this and says, this is what we do. Take dominion, rule and reign with me. Isn't this glorious? But then we butchered it. We messed it up in our rebellion and our sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God, the glory that we were intended for. We have fallen from that. And this relationship between us and God is fractured because of our sin. He is holy and we are not. And something must be done to bring us back, to be reconciled back to God. And this is what eternal life is, is to be with life himself, who is God, to be brought back with him. And he says, this is how it's going to happen. I will do it. I will bring you back into relationship with me. If you want eternal life, it's to be in relationship with life himself. It is to be in relationship with God. You cannot earn this. Your salvation is entirely beyond you. It is a gift that is given to you in grace from God that we simply trust. We believe in that. We confess in that. And in doing that, he's given us a new heart. So we turn from our sin. We repent of that, that we are trying to live like we were our own God. 
and we turn to the one true God. We confess to Jesus as Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and the promise of Scripture is we shall be saved. And it's all to be in relationship with him, to be with God. Jesus has done this. Did you catch what he says? He says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. By completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus completed the work that he was given to do. And so we should naturally ask, what was the work? The work that now gives us eternal life. Now look at verse six as we continue. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Do you remember the purpose statement? We've brought this up over and over throughout the series. John tells us in John 21, the purpose of this whole gospel, the reason he's writing, so that we may believe. Because in believing, we have eternal life. And what is it we're believing? The one who was sent. We're believing Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he has done. We have received that. And so the work of Jesus that he has completed, the work was to reveal God to us. The work was to give us the words of God. The word became flesh. He has come to us. Now look at verse nine. As I pray for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. So as Jesus does this, remember, final moments, he opts to pray. And as he's praying, he's praying, saying, this is the hour, this is what this has all been pointing to. All of history has been coming to this moment of glory. It is about glory and glory is about eternal life and eternal life is about being in relationship with God himself. And now he says, I pray for them. I pray for them. He's praying for the believers who would remain in the world. Christian, can you hear that? When Jesus, fully God and fully man, we know that just following this, as he's praying in the garden, he is in such anxiety, having such a panic attack that he is sweating blood. He knows the turmoil that he's about to endure. He knows how brutal, how barbaric, how awful this murder is going to be. And not just the physical side of that, but the spiritual side of that, that the very wrath of God would be poured out on God so that we would be brought back into relationship with God. Knowing that, he thought of you. He prayed for you. Oh, what a comfort to know that in his final moments, I'm on his mind. He's praying for me. He's praying for us. And why would he pray for us? A God who is perfect in every way and needs nothing? Because in this beautiful way, he has married himself to us. And that he says he is glorified in us. The way that God has always been glorified in himself, he now invites us into that. He says, I am glorified in you. And so he prays for us because he cares about his glory. Do you know we have a jealous God? He cares about his glory and righteously he is jealous and he is zealous for his glory. He says, you know, I, say, I will not share my glory with anyone else. He invites us into this. He is to be glorified. 
And so Jesus is praying for us because we are glorifying him. He is glorified in us. Again, we are brought into this relationship with him. That's so amazing. And now it leaves us with this burning question. If he's praying for us, what does he pray? In his final moments, what does he actually pray for me if he's going to pray for me? So let's read this together. In his final moments, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Weird reference there, son of destruction being lost. If you've been tracking with this, you know that Judas is to betray him. He has accepted 30 pieces of silver. He's gonna betray him with a kiss. You likely know how the story unfolds, but Jesus has already warned them. One of you is to betray me, the one who dips his bread in this cup with me. Judas left. Most of the disciples thought, oh, well, he's the, he's the treasurer. He's probably going to give money to the poor or something. But Jesus knows. And so in this moment, he's saying, protect them. I've protected them with the name that you've given me. Protect them by your name. I've lost none of them except the one that we said would be lost because this is our plan, leading to our glory. So Jesus, in these moments, is praying for our protection, and he prays for our protection by the name of the Father. And so again, remember, in this context, to speak of the name of someone is to speak of the person or the ability of the person. And so Jesus is praying to God the Father, saying, by your power, by your person, make this personal, that you would personally protect them by your power. As they remain in the world, and I'm coming to you, would you protect them by your power? Protection for us. Jesus praying for our protection. And why? What seems to be the greatest threat that he brings up here? That we would be one as he and the Father are one. That our unity is top of mind for him as he's praying for protection and so many things to be protected from. And yet the thing he brings up is that we would be united, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Do you know how devastating, do you know how damaging divisiveness in the church is? Oh, that we would be slow to speak and quick to listen. To be humbled enough to genuinely hear each other. That we would be courageous enough to speak honestly to each other. That we would have real unity. And not a unity that is founded on some false truth or an abdication of our responsibility to be about truth. I, a little embarrassing, but I've already, I've already told you. I ride a scooter to work most days. It's awesome. But I know that many of you don't think it's awesome. And so I want it to be as punk rock as, as, as I can possibly make it. So you know, when I'm riding that scooter, its top speed is 15 miles an hour, failing battery. It's probably more like 11 now, but that's okay. But I have one speed. It's wide open, wide open at all times, at all times. And I live on a hill. My neighborhood connects to the trail, and that's how I ride the scooter to work. I know, last time I said this, somebody called me out, that's not for motorized vehicles, but yeah, it's better than the cars. I've already been hit by a car once in my life. So here's the thing, wide open, going down that hill where my neighborhood connects to the trail, sharp turn, sharp turn with some different angles involved and two concrete poles to keep cars from going on there. So it's about the most dangerous part of my trip. Wide open, it's the only, it's the only speed I've got. So as I'm going down there, Every time I go over, there are two dangers there. There's some sand, and there's a stick that's been there for weeks now. 
You realize what I just said? It's been there for weeks. And so I'm wide open, downhill, coming down here. I've got to make this turn. Miss Jim, Mr. Jim and Miss Joyce, they know what I'm talking about because they live right there and they watch me every day. <laughs> but as I make this turn, this little stick, it's maybe 12 inches. It's not a big stick, but it's enough that I know it can take me out. And you know what I do? I go right around it. Knowing it's there, make this a little more dangerous, and I go around. You know what I have never done? Simply stopped and said, let me get this out of the way. <laughs> Anyone in their right mind knows, at this point, just stop the scooter <laughs> and move the stick, and the danger is now gone. And do you know that we treat so many of our relationships like that? Like right now, is there a stick that you know could take you out and cause some relational strife and damage in this church? But it's just easier to know the stick's there and dangerously try to go around it. Maybe one day we'll deal with that. And the heart of God is to say, no. Pick up the stick. Deal with it. When we see the grace of God given to us, the way that he has forgiven us, the way he has been honest with us, we can do that with each other. In great love, we can actually deal with the sticks. But that means we have to be people of humility, people of integrity that would say, humbly confess, I have messed up and I am sorry. Or hey, I don't know if you realize that you have hurt me. And the heart of God is for this to be beyond us. That we love each other. And so we can say some hard things. We can hold each other accountable. We can love each other. And not by dancing around sticks. Because one day, I'm probably going to eat it pretty hard. And I don't want that for any of us. Deal with them. He wants us to be united. He's praying for our protection. Let's be one as Jesus and the Father are one. A church united. Now look what he prays next. Verse 13. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Can you hear your Savior say, I've said these things in the world. Why? So that my joy may be completed in them. Can you believe that God desires for you to have full joy? Whatever is happening that is hard in your life right now, can you believe that God actually desires for you to have complete joy? Complete joy. And that's not to say that there aren't hard things, but it's to say in those things that you could have complete joy. Jesus is praying for you to have complete joy. Joy in him. It is his joy that is in us completed. The joy of God himself in us now. His joy his glory, our good. We talk about this a lot, that the glory of God is our good. His joy being in us. This is why the psalmist said in 1611, you reveal the path of life to me in your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. That every delight ever, it's right there with you, God. Why is it right there with him? Because he is the joy. Because he is all satisfying. There is nothing like him. Every good thing should just be pointing us to the ultimate good thing. Every gift, you look beyond it and you see the giver of the gift and he's so much better that you enjoy him. This is why Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. There's nothing like him. That he alone satisfies. And we've got to see this, this, this idea that is often coined Christian hedonism now. We typically think of hedonism as this awful thing, just kind of enjoy, like go crazy, be gluttonous, drunken, whatever. Like just whatever it is, consume. But Christian hedonism, this idea that actually our greatest joy is God himself and he is about his glory, so all the more press into that. Desire him all the more. Enjoy him all the more. Love him all the more. Delight in him. Be satisfied in him. And he delights in you as you delight in him. What a wonder. And so every decision that we make is going to be determined by what we treasure most, by what we desire most, good and bad. Your will is always bent towards what you desire most, what you treasure most. And if we could see that God is the greatest joy, that he is our joy, that we desire him more than anything, and we'd be satisfied more and more and more, and yet we would never run out because there's always more of him. He's infinite. There's always more. So see God as the greatest treasure. Desire him. Enjoy him above all. He is the greatest joy. And Jesus is praying that for you, that his joy would be complete in us joy for us. The next thing that he prays, I gotta speed up. Verse 14. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prays for our sanctity. Did you know that holiness matters? It really matters. We have no holiness of our own. But the imputed righteousness of Christ has been given to us. And now he's saying, this is who you are. Now live out of that. Be holy. And our holiness is tied to our obedience. So my pastor Alex took us through the famous vine and the branches last week. You can do nothing apart from Christ. Everything good that you could ever do is just because he is in you, working through you. And so you need to abide in him, remain in him, and yet it is sandwiched, it's saturated throughout it, that if you love me, you'll keep my commands. That we don't separate these two out. That yes, you only ever do any good because it is God at work in you, and yet you have a real responsibility to respond to this. Be obedient, be faithful in this, care about holiness. And Jesus is praying for our sanctity. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let's be a people so saturated with his word, listening to him, listening to the spirit, being shaped by that as we constantly look to him, submit to him, and let him wash us by the pure word. He washes us. He's praying for our sanctity, our obedience. Do you see the connection is to truth? Our sanctity, this sanctify them by your word, which is the truth. Again, a genuineness to this. This is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say things like, you say you have faith, you have no works, I'd say your faith is dead. If it's a faith that's alive, it's a faith that's going to produce works. You're not saved by your works, but what saved you will result in works. So be obedient, be sanctified, be authentic in this, this beautiful paradigm, this tension that Jesus is now praying for our sanctity because our sanctity is the necessary work of God. That's why it's a prayer. 
It's not something we could do. And yet, as God does this in us, we respond and we walk in it. So here, our Savior praying for us. And then the last thing he prays for us. Look at 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus is praying for our mission. The mission that he has given us. Did you catch what he said there? He did not say, I left them in the world. Do you know how much of a game changer that is? That Jesus did not say he left us in the world. He said, I sent them into the world. I sent them into the world as you sent me into the world. You have been sent here. This is why we need the things because it's about this mission he sent us here for. This is why he's praying for our protection because there's a real enemy. Satan is a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. He's prowling around. He's preying on us. The demons, they love to get in the way. He's praying for real protection. Keep us united because you know one of the best ways to conquer an enemy? Divide them. And keep them united. Be about the mission. Be about the glory of God. In every waking moment, be about the glory of God. Do what you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. Let's be united in that. He's praying for protection because it's about the mission. He's praying for our joy because in this mission, there is real difficulty, there's real strife, there's real pain. Some of you are feeling it so intensely right now. And yet he's saying, in that, you can have joy. You can still be about this mission. You can still bring glory to God. So be joyous in him. He's praying for our sanctity because in this mission, there is still the presence of sin. Not original to me, but I don't know who it's original to, but I love thinking about the three Ps of sin. That Jesus on the cross, he paid our penalty. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. The spirit alive in us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. We are now slaves to righteousness. It is him working in us. And so we've been freed from the power of sin. And yet the presence of sin is still here until the day of the Lord when he comes and recreates everything. And so Jesus is saying, I've dealt with the penalty and I'm sending my spirit to give you the power. But the presence is still there. The presence of sin is as real as the flesh that you and I wear that is prone to sin. So he's praying for our sanctity because he knows that this is a real struggle. And so let's fight in that. But then he closed it out and said, I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. That Jesus sanctifies himself. He sanctified himself so that we could be sanctified by the truth. He is the truth. Jesus is our holiness. It's he who knew no sin who became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is our holiness. He sanctifies himself and that he was not a sinner. He didn't have any sin to deal with, but he took our sin on himself. He sanctified himself in the sense of how in the temple sacrificial system, they would sanctify an offering. They would consecrate it. This is set apart for death as a substitute for someone else. And that is what he's doing in this, preparing himself because what's he going to do? As a lamb led to the slaughter, he will silently walk up to his death. He has consecrated himself, he has sanctified himself to be the once final for all sacrifice, to atone, to cover for our sin so that we could be sanctified. He was sanctified. He's our substitute, devoted to this mission to the point of death. 
our substitute, but also our example. That now we walk in the same line, taking up our cross and following him. And what a joy it is to die to ourselves and find real life. Life to the full, life with joy complete. Life in him who is life. To be with him. Be devoted to the mission. Because again, if you hear nothing else today, you weren't left here. You were sent here. You weren't left here, you were sent here. We must consider the difference in being left somewhere and being sent somewhere. If you were left in the woods, some of you might like that. I fought with a bee. <laughs> Barely one. <laughs> if you're sent to the woods, though, it's a different story. We come with strategy. We come with equipment. We come with a mission. We come with a purpose. In my life, I, I racked my brain trying to think of a good example of this, and this is just my personality. Dances. Whew. I remember the first time I was left at a dance. Oh, dear Jesus. To be left at a dance and just hide in the shadows. This is a moment where I'm supposed to look. There's girls here. It was just, it was awful in every way possible. When I was a high school teacher, I was sent to a dance to be a chaperone. You know how much more comfortable I was? Because I had a purpose. Flashlight, yes. I had a purpose. And so this is, this is us. We were not left here to just kind of flounder about and wonder, what, what, what makes sense of any of this? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? You were sent here. You were sent here for the purpose of changing things, for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Because you remember verse 10? He is glorified in us. You are here for the glory of God. You are here to make sure the world knows he is glorious. We're here to see his kingdom, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can we be about that? You're sent here for that. Uh, John Piper, I love the way he wrote this in one of his books. He said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Do you know that? Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. We exist for the glory of God, and what a privilege to invite others into a life that will glorify God. So let's be about the mission. What a privilege to delight in God who delights in us. He has made us delightful in the atoning work of Jesus Christ who sanctified himself, went to a cross, died the death that you and I deserve, and then rose again victorious over death so we could be with him forever. Turn from your sin. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Let's walk with him together, enjoying him. Skeptic, seeker, stumbling, or doubting saint, wherever you come from, will you believe this good news right now? There's a God who loves us like that. And follower of Jesus, who can you share this good news with? To bring glory to God, the God who is glorified in you, so that others would bring glory to God. And what a beautiful season this is. Easter is coming up. We printed these little cards. I go back and forth on whether I ever like any kind of printed invitation type thing, but we keep it minimal because you should have some tools. We would love to make this easier for you. So if you're at a point where you are so terrified of, of speaking about Jesus, I have been there. I know what that is like. And I slip back into that many times. 
So I don't want you to feel any shame. But maybe for you, bringing glory to God is to simply say, I thought about you and my church was encouraging us to invite people to our Easter gathering. I'd love for you to come. Or maybe you want to step further into this obedience. Maybe it's a simple statement like, Easter's coming up. This is a holiday where we talk about someone coming back from the dead. What do you think happens after we die? And then in great hospitality, sit with them and listen to what they say. Genuinely listen to what they say. And when you have genuinely listened to them, share what hope you have. Tell them the gospel. Tell them about a glorious God who would come and make a way for us to be brought back with him forever. Pray. I want to close with all of us praying for a moment. So as the band comes, I will not pray aloud, but I would encourage each of you to pray. And I want you to ask God, ask him to bring someone to mind. Who can you share the hope of Easter with in a season when people are far more open to talking about these things? Ask God in this moment, who do you want me to talk about the resurrection with? The hope that I have in you, the life and joy I have with you. Ask and listen.